Revelation 21 from verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of the Lord gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will, never be, no, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, 
but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Let's just pause in prayer before we start to look at this great passage together. Let's pray. Lord God, this is your word and we are looking here at an amazing passage, a wonderful revelation. And we pray that as we look at this passage, it might indeed be wonderful to us, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see great spiritual realities. We pray that we might not just hear the words of a person speaking, but that we might hear the word of the living God. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, awaken us, soften us, move us, stir us, we pray by your Spirit, that we might love the things that you teach us here. And so we ask this through our Saviour, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Maybe you've sometimes read a movie review that contains... Spoilers. It's kind of annoying, isn't it? If you read a movie review and it tells you what's going to happen in the plot, it sort of ruins it all. Sometimes I've recorded a footy match and I want to watch this at a later time and I don't want to find out the score in advance. And so you're desperately trying not to listen to the news and not to talk to anyone who likes footy. Fingers and ears until you have seen the match for yourself because you only have to hear the final score and the whole enjoyment of the match is gone. I remember when I was uh, a boy, maybe like many little boys, I was always so keen to know what I was going to get for Christmas. And uh, one year I found out, now through devious means and I won't go into what they were, but I found out what I was going to get for Christmas. And Christmas Day was a letdown. All the excitement had gone. I think we have this kind of love-hate relationship with knowing the end. And I don't know, maybe, maybe that's why God doesn't tell us too much about what is in store at the end of this age. He gives us teasers, not spoilers. We see just a little. It's as though we see through a crack in the door. Think of um, how I often feel when I'm, say, in a hospital or a public building like that. hospital particularly comes to mind. Uh, You walk down the corridors and you see these doors that have signs on them like no admittance, staff only. And if I see a door like that, I think, what's behind there? (laughs) Bodies? Blood? Like... Just the fact that it says no admittance piques my curiosity. So if someone comes through that door and it's open for just a second, like you're peering through, mm. well, 
in Revelation, in these last two chapters of the Bible in particular, the door to eternity is open just a crack. We see a little. We don't see everything. There are no spoilers here, but there are some teasers. And I want to ask you with you this morning, what do we see through the crack in the door? What lies beyond this world? I'm not talking about when we die now and our spirits are taken to be with the Lord in glory if we belong to Jesus Christ. No, I'm talking about what happens after Jesus returns. Where will we be for all eternity? What will we be doing for all eternity? What do you anticipate? Well, let's look with John, the Apostle John, who receives this amazing revelation. Let's look with him through this crack in the door. The first thing he sees is a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's to say, a new heaven and a new earth. He saw a new world. He saw a new universe. He saw a new cosmos. This present world in which we live, this universe, heaven and earth, passes away and he sees a new one. But the passing away of this old earth, this old world, is not by way of complete annihilation, but rather total renovation. Interestingly, there are two words in the Greek New Testament for new. One word is the word neos, which is usually used to mean brand new, completely new, totally new. The other word is kainos, which means a new nature, new in quality, renewed. Remember it says in uh, 2 Corinthians 5 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's kainos new. You are renewed. You are renovated by the work of Jesus Christ. And what John sees is now the whole of creation renewed and renovated. We moved into our current home about uh, seven, eight years ago and since then we've been... uh, on a a seemingly endless project of renovating this house. We do sort of one room a year and we're nearly there. Um, In fact, next year I'm hoping that's the back deck so we've moved through the house. Uh, And with each room you you strip it back and you start afresh and, and you completely renovate it. And once a room in our house is renovated, it becomes this nice place to be. And the rooms that weren't renovated were frumpy and old. The, the new ones were inviting, the old ones were dowdy. And the picture we should have is that in comparison with the new heaven and new earth, this world is, if you like, dowdy and frumpy. It will be, this world will see, be seen by us eventually to be totally uninviting compared with the restored, renovated, renewed earth that God is going to bring about. And friends, I think this is a tremendous thought and a very, very important thought for us to get. Our eternity will be on a new 
earth, as real, physical, tangible as this earth, for in a sense it will be this earth itself thoroughly renovated. That means that your eternal destiny is not floating around with your spirit in some kind of ethereal realm. Your eternity is not strumming a harp dressed in a white gown on a fluffy cloud somewhere. I think a lot of people don't really get excited about the future because we have all these images. The average Aussie bloke just doesn't want to spend eternity strumming a harp and wearing a crown. It's not that cool. And thankfully that's not the picture that we're given here. We're given a picture of a new earth, a new cosmos. Jesus said, didn't he, the meek will inherit the earth. And the earth we will inherit will be so much better than this world. Look at what it says here. Verse 4, he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. On this new earth there'll be no sickness, no sadness, no tragedy, no failure, no disasters, all disappointment, all pain, all grief will be gone forever. Those things belong to this old order which will pass away. Never again will a young man go off to war and not come home. Never again will someone acknowledge Jesus and be ridiculed and persecuted for it. Never again will a kid go to school and get bullied. Never again will students go to the exam room and fail. Never again will a husband go to his wife and be rejected or a wife go to her husband and get a cold shoulder. Never again will you go to an airport and say a miserable goodbye not knowing whether you'll ever see them again. Never again will you stand around a grave with tears in your eyes and a knot in your throat saying goodbye to a life partner. Never again will you do something that you deeply regret and so wish you could undo. Never again. How come it will be so good? It's in verse 3, a verse I skipped over. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. Now the dwelling of God. I could translate that a different way. This would be the most literal translation I could make of that verse. Behold the tabernacling of God is with man and he will tabernacle tabernacle with them 
and they will be his people. And that's a really significant way to understand it, that it uses the word tabernacle. Because in the Old Testament, some of the guys who were here with us yesterday saw this, in the Old Testament, God came and tabernacled, he tented, he camped in the midst of Israel to be his presence amongst his people. And they had all these complicated ceremonies and rituals by which they could approach the living God in their midst. And then Jesus came and tabernacled amongst us. The word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt, tented amongst us. John 1.14 Jesus became the presence of God in our midst. But his presence was pointing forward to this ultimate dwelling of God with man. Now we're told in this new heaven and earth, God tabernacles with his people. And so... There's a second reality we see here. Through the crack in the door we we see this new heaven and new earth. But, But let's move on with the pictures here. We see also an enormous holy of holies. We see an enormous holy of holies. In John's vision he sees uh, coming down from heaven the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. There's an interesting mixing of images there. He sees a city, he sees a new Jerusalem, but the city is dressed like a bride. (laughs) We've got to remember that we're dealing with imagery, We're, we're dealing with picture language. Not everything is literal here. And it seems the city, the new Jerusalem, is none other than the bride of Christ, which is the church. The city is dressed as a beautiful bride. The bride is prepared and ready for her husband. You know that brides always look good on their wedding day. Every bride looks stunning. It doesn't matter what they look like the rest of the time. On their wedding day, they look great. And so it will be when the church is presented to Jesus Christ, beautiful, perfected, radiant, glorious, wonderful. Now the image is found the opposite way round as John continues to see through the crack in the door. Look now at verses 9 and 10. The uh, angel who's leading him around says, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb, and he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and he showed me the holy city. (laughs) So first he sees a city coming down and it's dressed as a bride. Now he's taken to see the bride and the bride is the city. The city is then described in verses 9 to 27 and there are some wonderful things to note here and and remember now we're, we're thinking about God's eternal people, the church perfected and glorified. We're thinking, for those of us who know Jesus, we're thinking about ourselves and all God's people for eternity. Look at the way that God's people are described. First of all, it is described as a radiant, glorious city, verse 11. It's a place of beauty, of rich treasures, of amazingly precious stones. In this city there are no slums, there are no dodgy neighbourhoods, 
There are no back alleys where you wouldn't want to go. The entire city reflects the glory and the majesty and the beauty of God. And there will be wealth beyond compare. Some time ago I was talking on the phone to uh, an insurance person just checking our insurance cover and he said, um, now uh, do you think you've got enough um, cover on jewellery? He said, you've only got $1,000 jewellery cover. I said, yeah, that should be fine. He said, really? Like your wife doesn't have any necklaces, rings, um, I said, well, nothing worth over $1,000 total. And you could almost hear him think, that poor woman. (laughs) He's a professional. He started to tell me about his wife. (laughs) Uh, In the world to come, my wife will be a wealthy woman. (laughs) In the world to come, there'll be jewels and riches in abundance a place of lavish lavish generosity from God. But also then the next part of the image is a place of absolute security. Not only a radiant, glorious city, but an absolutely secure city. Uh, We read here of the, the high walls and the many gates. There'll be no need for insurance agents in the new city. Uh, There'll be no danger, no attack. No trouble will ever visit us there. And we don't have a chance to look at all the imagery, but the the gates and the foundations represent the people of God in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes, and the people of God in the New Testament, the 12 apostles. Thirdly then, we see that this is an enormous city. If you look at verses 15 to 17, we're told the dimensions of it, and the kind angel was actually measuring it in man's measurement, which is very... Uh, understanding of them, 12,000 stadia. Uh, 12,000 stadia is an enormous distance. Basically, we're told this is a city that's as wide as it is long and if we were to measure that in terms of our geography, it's a city that stretches pretty well from Perth to Adelaide and from Adelaide up to Darwin. Imagine a square that size. That is the size of the city's dimensions as described here. Why so vast? Because it's symbolic of the vast multitude who will live there. Revelation has said it earlier, multitudes worshipping God, men and women from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. God throughout the ages is gathering for himself an enormous bride, an enormous church, an enormous body of worshippers who will be gathered into this eternal city. But there's something more stunning yet and that is that we're told the city is not only that distance wide and long but it is the same distance high which is a really mind-boggling thought. What's the significance of that? I don't think the significance is necessarily that we are to imagine uh, these like 1,400 mile, 2,000 kilometre tall skyscrapers. I think the imagery is rather this city is being described as a perfect cube. And if your biblical knowledge 
mind is ticking over rapidly. What, what other place was a perfect cube? The Holy of Holies. Within the tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle, and then the temple, the most holy place, the inner sanctuary, where God's presence was most wonderfully and mysteriously represented, that room was a perfect cube. And now we're told this enormous city is a perfect cube. The significance of which is that whole city is the holy of holies. And that's what it goes on to say in verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. God is present there. The whole city is his temple. You remember in the Old Testament, that most holy place was the most holy place on earth. God camped in the middle of his people. The people could come near through sacrifice and approach him. Only the priests could go into the holy place. And only the high priest once a year could go into the most holy place where God's glory was manifest. And then remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross. We're told that the temple of the curtain was ripped from top to bottom. The veil, the the huge curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn open when Jesus died. Powerful God-given symbolism that now God's people would have access to God himself, access into the most holy place. And yet the access we have through Jesus is still limited, isn't it? We have access to God now through Jesus, but, but it's a spiritual access, not a, not a physical access into the presence of God. And though we have access to God through Jesus, isn't it true that we still struggle to really know God deeply and personally? Don't you sometimes find that you, you want to know God better, but it's hard. You want to be spiritually alive and awake, and yet you're spiritually dry. You know that Jesus is all that you need for life and security and yet it's so hard sometimes for that to be the reality by which we live by. We struggle. Uh, Paul says in one of his letters in Corinthians, he says, now we see through a glass darkly. We, We only just get this dim picture. And here we're told a whole new order will open up and God will be in our midst and we'll never again feel spiritually distant, never again feel spiritually dry. We'll be caught up into the glory and the majesty and the presence of God because he will live among us. His light will enlighten us always. You know that the book of Revelation is full of praise, full of doxologies. Those doxologies will be the theme tunes of our lives. We'll readily and easily praise God when he dwells amongst us. So the best thing about the new heaven and the new earth is not all the riches. The best thing is not the gold and the jewels. 
the best thing is the presence of God with us and we close to him forever. So John has seen a new heaven and new earth. John has seen a city that is an enormous holy of holies. There's one final thing John sees and it's recorded at the beginning of chapter 22. He sees paradise regained. Paradise regained. Remember the Garden of Eden? The Garden of Eden was a place of beauty and abundance. It was a place of precious stones and gold. It was a place where rivers flowed, great mighty rivers that kept everything lush and fertile. It was a place of beauty and harmony and of peace and innocence and joy. It was a place where God walked in the garden of the cool of the day and had fellowship with the man and woman that he created for himself. It was good. It was paradise. But all of that was lost through sin. When man rebelled against God and told God really to get lost, I want to do my own thing and find my own way to wisdom and knowledge, when man rebelled against God, God removed him from paradise. And we, ever since, have lived in a cursed world. And ever since we've been in desperate pursuit of paradise, we're wired to want that. We long for all those things that paradise was. We long for wealth and abundance and, and peace and pleasure and delight and harmony and excellence. We just want everything to be good. And we chase that. People pursue paradise in so many different ways. Maybe you're pursuing paradise in relationships. Some people just flit from relationship to relationship, desperately trying to find friendship and joy and pleasure. Maybe you're pursuing it in work, desperately trying to find in your work ultimate satisfaction and success. Maybe you've looked to drink to drown your sorrows. Maybe you look to drugs to to get a high and to, to have some sort of wonderful experience. Maybe you just hanker after holidays or, or, or you're just always in pursuit of wealth and possessions. There are so many ways people are chasing after what paradise was. And yet those things always disappoint us. We always pull up short when we try to find paradise in those things. They never totally satisfy long term because they were never meant to. They're cheap, plastic, trite replacements for what God first gave us. And now the picture is that paradise will be regained. This new earth, this enormous holy of holies is like Eden again, only bigger and better. Uh, you notice some of the imagery there in verses 1 to 5. Again, there is the water of life. There's this mighty stream flowing, flowing from the throne of God, 
flowing through the midst of the city, nourishing everything and sustaining life. You'll notice that the tree of life is back. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden so that they couldn't eat of the tree of life. They couldn't take hold of eternal life. And yet now the tree is growing on both sides of the banks. I don't quite know how that works. But it's growing on both sides of the river and it's bearing fruit and its leaves bring healing to the nations. It's it's a life-giving tree. And the nations and the peoples of this world are healed of injustice and oppression and violence and wickedness. And we're told here the curse is removed. Verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. Every day on this earth we live with the reality of the curse. Our bodies are under the curse. They get sick, they get weak, they get sore, they fail. I'm just getting old enough now to understand about getting tired when I didn't used to get tired. My children remind me that I'm very old and we need glasses and we need walking sticks and we need hospitals. And our, our bodies are struggling and increasingly. You're just going to get worse, guys. Some of you are bad already. Our bodies struggle. It's not just our bodies that struggle. Our world is cursed. Volcanoes and tsunamis and earthquakes, terrible devastations. And our souls are cursed. In fact, before we come to know the the renovating work of Jesus Christ in our lives, we're utterly devoid of true spirituality. We We don't even desire God. We're we're incapable of pleasing him and enjoying him. And even once we've been saved by Christ, we still struggle to grow in holiness. We still struggle to be spiritually focused. Sanctification is hard work. And so a curse-free world is almost unimaginably good. No sin in us or in others. No temptations. No imperfections. No disappointments. No disasters. The curse gone. And once again, as in the previous pictures we've looked at, the climax of this picture is that God is there in the midst of his people. Look at the rest of verse 3. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they'll see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They'll not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Notice that it says there, God will be there. He'll be giving us light and joy and all that we need and it says they, God's people, will serve him. That does not mean an eternal worship service. I used to think of that as a boy. I used to think heaven is going to be an eternal church service and I don't like the idea because I can barely survive an hour. How am I going to survive eternity? 
How many hymns will there be? How long will the Bible readings be? Like, we have this picture sometimes that eternity is just an eternal church service, but that is not the picture here. Eternity is serving God in this paradise as Adam and Eve served God in the first place. In the Garden of Eden, they, they worked and they enjoyed and they explored and they named the animals and they cultivated and they did that in honour and glory to God and they enjoyed fellowship with him day by day as they did that. He was in their midst and it was, it was good. And in the new earth, we will work and serve and explore and enjoy We won't just float around strumming harps and sitting in pews forever and ever. Amen. I don't know exactly what this will look like, but we will be on a new earth serving God, using perfected gifts and talents, enjoying the abundance of the earth, serving one another, enjoying perfect relationships and doing all ceaselessly to the glory of God. Of course, we're only looking through a crack in the door. So don't ask me hard questions afterwards. There's so much we don't know. You you say, what what jobs will we be doing? I don't know. How old will we be? Like if you die as a baby, are you baby forever? Like, If I die now, do I lock in 47? Mm. I I have no idea how age works. We're told there's no marriage. Mm. Wendy and I have sort of decided we might want to hang out together anyway. (laughs) (laughs) If it's back to the Garden of Eden, um, then there's probably no killing. And if there's no killing, does that mean we're back to vegetarianism? But I thought it was meant to be perfect. There's so much we don't know. Like I said at the beginning, we're given teasers, not spoilers. The one thing all these pictures tell us without a shadow of a doubt is it is going to be really, really good. You will not be disappointed. It will be the most wonderful place forever. Friends, it is worth waiting for. If you don't get to do everything that you want to do in this world, so what? Wendy and I would love to go to Europe sometime, but we don't know if we will. It ain't happened yet. It doesn't look like it's going to happen soon. But we often say, it doesn't matter if we never get there. We're going to see this world when it is far better. I don't know what degree of continuity there will be between this world and that world. I don't know whether we'll still get to see the great cathedrals and art galleries of Europe. I have no idea how that works. But I know it will be better. And so what if you miss out on a few things now? So what if you make some sacrifices in this short life for the sake of a world that will be far better? It is worth setting your eyes on this eternal glory and live for that. But how do you know it's for you? How do you know you will be there? 
Can we be sure? The Bible's wonderful answer is that this new world has been won for us by Jesus. He has removed the curse. He has secured God amongst us. He is the one through whom already now our hearts have been renewed and one day our bodies and this world will be renewed. All of it is won for us and secured for us by Jesus Christ. And it's ours simply through faith in him, by taking him as our hope, by taking him as our saviour, by taking him as the one on whom we pin all our hopes, the one who deals with our sin, the one who deals with our imperfections, the one who carries us to the glory and the one who uh, unfolds all this for us by knowing that he is our husband and we are the bride being ready for him. If Jesus is your hope, if he is the centre of your life, then the eternity I've described is absolutely yours. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be good enough to get there. You have a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is nothing more important, I think, in this world than knowing Jesus. Because if that's what eternity is about and Jesus is the way there, what could be more important than knowing Christ and beginning to live for him now so that we can live with him for all eternity. I hope, friends, so many of you I don't know at all, but I hope I'll see you there. And for all eternity, we'll we'll get to know each other And we will enjoy this glorious world to the glory of the God who saved us. So see you later. Shall we pray? Lord God, our minds are just blown away and our hearts are moved by this picture of what is in store eternally. We're so often caught up in this world and we're chasing money here and we're chasing houses and chasing holidays and yet we pray that you would just pull us away from uh, having our hearts set on things that can't satisfy and things that will pass away. Give us a heart that loves and yearns for this kind of eternity and so draw us to Jesus, the only one who can secure it for us. Give us faith in him and through him usher us we pray, into these glorious blessings. And fill our hearts with hope, fill our hearts with joy, even when we're passing through the toughest stuff in this world, help us to remember that far better is coming. Help us to let go of petty little things here that would perhaps prevent us from taking hold of what you offer us in Jesus Christ. May this glorious reality be the future of every man and woman and child here this morning. And we know that you can do that through your grace in your son Jesus. We praise and thank you for him and pray in his name. Amen.